Hello, welcome to another episode of our podcast. As you've seen in the previous episode, we intend to talk to graduate students who are neurodiverse, identify as neurodiverse, give them an opportunity to talk about their experiences. And as we discussed earlier, the intention is for people out there to hear about those experiences. They understand that a lot of people may face some of the challenges that they might be experiencing in an education setting. And hopefully that becomes a motivation for them to work hard, to get through, to be successful and less bothered by our traditional education system. So today I'm speaking with Asia Perkins. <laughs> She's a fourth-year PhD student in clinical psychology. Asia, thank you very much for doing this. Uh, I cannot thank you enough. And I hope to make sure we serve our objective, mm -hmm. we make it a conversation, a very comfortable, honest conversation between us. And I have my own experiences as, a, as someone who went through the education system with ADHD, dyslexia, and you have your own experiences. And it is going to be very informative for me also to see someone who has experiences related to autism, mm -hmm. how they see things, how they perceive things, how different their experiences are. It's just going to be a lot of interesting information for me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So if you want to kind of like maybe tell us why you are doing this, what was the, your main motivation that you accepted this invitation and joined us for this podcast. I think there's just kind of a lack of community for neurodiverse individuals, especially in graduate school. I think there are many more of us than we kind of believe or we know because people haven't really been encouraged to share that part of their identity. Yeah. It's more of like a hidden thing and you feel very alone. So I wanted to kind of help build that community and make sure people feel like there are other people out there who understand them. And it's not just a them problem or something that's wrong with them. Awesome. Thank you. So should we go chronologically through your educational experience? Let's start with, with your elementary school. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Those old elementary days. school was a tire. Yeah, I got in trouble a lot in school. Both called a bad kid, but I was also in the gifted program. I was like, it was a very weird position to, to be placed in. Can you give us examples like bad experiences at the same time? What cognitive assets you had that like it was so unique amongst the students that came to me? Yeah, when I was younger, I was told that I talked too much. I would get in trouble all the time. I was told that I was too wiggly, even though I was like in the age where wiggling was fine. Yeah. And then I had a lot of teachers not listen to my needs when I was younger. So there were times when I had to use the bathroom and they wouldn't let me because I just thought I was trying to like get one over on them or I was just trying to be disruptive and that I would have accidents in the classroom even though I knew I, I had these specific. Other than that, cognitive things that helped me along the way. I think kind of just understanding that not everyone was going to get me even as a kid. So I, I felt very connected with my parents. I was able to tell them, hey, here's what's going on at school. And my parents provided a very loving and supportive environment and would like advocate for me if I if I told them what was going but also I used a lot of escapism I absolutely love reading I love fantasy I love mm -hmm. sci-fi and since I was kind of in the gifted program there were periods of time where they would just let me go off into like the reading nook and I would just read for an hour or two while other people were learning things that I already knew about so I was I was kind of able to escape some of those environments that were not so great with my teachers and go read for two hours and just like be alone and recoup. And do you have any distinct memory of something that really had an impact on the way you liked school? I mean, for example, for me, it was a very traumatic experience I had. It was actually multiple occasions when I was in fourth grade, randomly being called and asked to read aloud just a random paragraph yeah. on, on our textbook. So it was the anxiety of that and the anticipation, oh, it, next, next is mine and I don't know which paragraph because I typically like used to, for example, when they were going in orders, I used to kind of like 
count the number of students that they're in front of me and say, okay, probably it's like this paragraph or just reading, practicing, practicing. So when it comes to me, it's not like a sheer embarrassment. Mm -hmm. That was very distinctive. I mean, that, that experience is still like, I feel tightness in my chest when I talk about that. It, it's not that I'm sad or angry, is just uh, muscle memory, I can say, mm -hmm. is that trigger. So anything like that? Anything. I know my first like negative experience was in kindergarten. Even before kindergarten, I was like begging my parents, can I go to school yet? Can I go to school? Please, can I go to school? Because I just really loved learning. And then in kindergarten, that was the first teacher I ever had experience with. I didn't go to preschool. And she treated me differently. She didn't like me very much. She didn't listen to my needs. And I also didn't feel very connected to school. And I remember coming home to my parents going, I'm not going back to school. I'm not even going to college. Like I had already planned to go to college at that age. And I said, I'm not going. I don't really, I thought I would like it. And I don't, people aren't listening to me. And so my dad actually had to advocate with me, take me to the teacher, have a conversation, and then kind of make adjustments with the teacher so I would like school a little bit more. And then I have had negative experiences throughout my education, but I think I'm just too stubborn. Like, mm, yeah. <laughs> if I'm not, like, internally motivated and I'm like, I really like this, then I turn to spite. Like, sometimes I am motivated by spite. This person told me I couldn't do this, but I know that I can and I'm going to. And whether or not they, they see whatever I can kind of come up with, I know that I proved them wrong. I used to do that a lot when I was younger. A little less so now. But. It's hard to judge in someone else's place, but do you think if another kid that is exposed to some adversity like that doesn't have that stubbornness? Mm -hmm. And you know, maybe you can, you can use some of your formal training psychology <laughs> to answer my question. Mm -hmm. Do you think a kid that doesn't have that, or like, I, I never advocated for myself. I was shy. I was not a person who can really stand up for himself. Yeah. Even today, I mean, yeah. I'm like that. It's just who I am. Mm -hmm. No regrets. If there is someone that is more like me, mm -hmm. how do you think they're going to internalize this? How do you think it's going to register for them? I think it really hurts someone to have those experiences. They might believe, oh, I'm, I'm a bad person. I'm a bad kid. I'm a bad learner. I'm never going to be able to do this. And then you just kill their motivation to learn and kind of expand their, their horizons, their experiences. So you kind of give up on like an entire field of like, oh, I'm not meant for college. I'm not, I'm not meant for grad school. I'm not meant for this particular field because these people, these educators don't believe that I yeah. can do it for whatever reason. It can like kill a part of you. Mm -hmm. It could be really devastating. I've talked to people who've shared like negative experiences in kindergarten or in elementary school and they were so excited to learn and then it was just kind of squished Plus, out yeah. of them. Yeah. It really hurts. This, that is, um, it really saddens me that, again, I have a lot of respect for educators individually, but there are some systematic problems. Absolutely. It's more of the system problem rather than individual. Someone who goes to become a teacher, mm -hmm. they really have this internal love toward youngers, you know, and they, they want to really, they're passionate about education. So typically jerks, they don't go to become a teacher. Mm -hmm. I mean, like it rarely if they typically go to other, I don't know, like we don't want to be know where they go. <laughs> but let's not get to politics. But so teachers are not necessarily the problem here is just the way the system is mm -hmm. set up. There are some underlying assumptions. There are some fundamental biases mm -hmm. that the system have toward standard traditional learners. Mm -hmm. And that and whomever falls outside that kind of standard definition then is like, yeah. too much energy why can't you just learn like everyone else why don't you go to that office to see like yeah if they yeah. can help the situation uh, intervene some some way yeah and then how does it change the sense of belonging of a person being in that environment what do you think i mean like from the sense of we are talking a lot about marginalized population lack of sense of belonging but like mm -hmm. doesn't that yeah, you kind of get ostracized because you see 
like your peers see that you're getting on, like your teacher's getting on to you and you they are hearing the messages that the teacher is sharing with you with like, why can't you just sit down? Why can't you just pay attention? They hear that and they see the teachers treating you that way. And then maybe your peers don't want to associate with you. And so you are kind of isolated from a lot of your peers, unless you happen to have another neurodivergent person in your yeah. class. And usually you can kind of tell that there's something you share in common. You may not know what it is, but then you can kind of get along. But if you're the only person in your class, your grade, then it could be pretty ostracized yeah. and lonely. Yeah. Let's, let's move to your middle school years. Mm -hmm. uh, what was your experience? Again, middle school age has its own challenges. Mm -hmm. On top of that, we have these kind of like strange, confusing messaging that there is something in us that says that, oh, you like learning, you love learning, you want to learn, you have fun with it. And then like the confusing message we get from the environment school at the same time that we are just like at that age, just confused mm -hmm. to be alive. Yes. <laughs> so, so let's go to that time. So for middle school and high school, I think those periods were a lot better than elementary school mm. just because of the type of school I went to and the environment that I had. So I definitely think that I was privileged in, in that just because, so I went to a combined middle and high school and it was an international baccalaureate and visual performing arts school. So it was like we were all weirdos and we all kind of embraced it. So, so you just had, blended in. Yeah, like we all had major majors. You had like harp majors. I I was an IB major, which was like the academic major for the school, but I was still an orchestra. You had people singing in the hallways because they were choir majors. You had drama shows all the time and ballet majors. So I think I was privileged that I was able to be in that type of environment where people were just like, okay with being weird. Like a bunch of people liked anime when it was cringy to like anime and manga at that time. And people just embraced it. You like came to cause like came to school in cosplay and like costumes and stuff. And people were generally accepting. There were some people who would go like, what are you doing? Even for us, that's a little weird and a little odd, but usually they would ask and there wasn't like the same level of bullying that I have heard about from people who got to like different types of schools. So I think I had like a very different experience because mm -hmm. I talked to other people and I'm like, oh, that was not what I went through at all. It's like, so can you, from those conversations, again, like you've done a lot of therapy sessions already mm -hmm. and you know a lot about other students' experiences that mm -hmm. might, and actually it's nice because you can say, okay, like if the environment is conducive, the experience is going to be like mine. And if not, then it's going to be like some of your clients. Can you tell us like overarching, not, not specific things that were t told to you, just overarching themes that you see that people still like deal with after so many years, still with, deal with the trauma of that. Do you want to hear, you want to hear about their perspectives their or you want to hear about things that I Their perspective. Or you, you heard, yeah, both from <laughs> others, you know. Yeah. So on one side, things that really helped me were that it wasn't like a traditional educational environment where like you go to school, it's very structured all the time. You have to be at this place at this time. And like, you have to sit down and face forward and keep your eyes on the teacher and look at me when I'm talking to you. It wasn't like that. It was a lot more flexible. You didn't have to ask to go to the bathroom. They just said, you all are like independent beings. If you have to use the bathroom, you can just get up, take the pass and go. We're not going to monitor you. Like that is a normal bodily function. You can go ahead and do that. If you had difficulty with a subject, you could get one-on-one -on -one learning. You could have like in class, they would have group sessions with your peers where you're learning from each other. And so you can kind of explain things in a different way that maybe the teacher wasn't able to convey to you. So it's just like a lot more flexibility. I want to take some time. It's for my own education. Yeah. And I think for inclusivity, we need to have genuine awareness about around mm -hmm. things, not, not stereotypes that, and I want to talk about one of those yeah. because again like based on my i don't have any personal experience with okay. autism okay so or although we are all on that spectrum mm -hmm. so but not to the level that i've felt challenges but from what i've read a lot of people they talk about more the more the structure exists in the system the better it's going to be for them they like routines they like they don't like surprises so yes. can you help by educating me why why you said the the 
maybe non-traditional structure it had, more flexibility, all of those things helps you rather than making you overwhelmed with the uncertainties of daily things. So Yeah. So when I when I'm talking about the traditional structure, I'm also including like all of the implicit or unspoken rules about traditional education, which includes like making eye contact with your teacher. Otherwise they think that you're not paying attention, that you don't care, that you're not listening. Things like that, like being able to fidget. Oh, you're just doodling and not, you don't care. You're not, you're like in another land. And like, why don't you think this is important? When I'm like, no, if I, if I have this little piece of paper or like if I have this pen that I'm clicking or like flipping, that helps me focus. And in a more traditional setting, usually they go, stop doing that. Yeah. Put like, put your, if you have to put your hands under your legs, do that to not be distracting to everyone else. When the other kids are like, oh, I didn't even notice they were doing that. It's more like, I don't know, it feels more like a prison when it's yeah, more yeah. traditional. And so that's what I'm talking about for less Lucid structured structure. and traditional. Yeah. There are also like aspects of the traditional structure that doesn't make, or it just like seems unreasonable. Like, why do I have to ask to use the bathroom? Or like, why does it have to be exactly this way? If I find another way that also works and I get the same answer, why am I wrong? for thinking outside the box and thinking more creatively. Mm. Just because you want me to do it this way and the curriculum says, this is the only way to do it. Why can't we try it this way? So am I correct if I say that, so routine is helpful, yes. but is there a routine sense. that makes sense? <laughs> it has to make sense. Yeah, so for a lot of autistic people, things have to be efficient and things have to make sense. So if there's like already a structure in place, many autistic people will ask a lot of why questions, which can kind of get you in trouble because people think that you're trying to like stir up trouble or go against their authority or things like that. So people say, why can't you just do it? But it's hard for at least me to do something if I don't understand why I am doing it and why I am doing it that way. That makes a lot of sense that what's certain environments or dynamics cause stressful situation or anxiety because there's a structure it's not lack of a structure it is a structure in place that doesn't make sense yes so you cannot intellectually it there is a mismatch between the structure that makes sense for you to be that needs to be placed in here and what exists out there mm -hmm. Yeah. That that makes a lot of sense. So that's kind of, of where like the anxiety comes from sometimes because you're like, okay, I have to do this task, but like, how am I supposed to do it? Why do I have to do that? Why am I doing it this way? And then people are like, why do you ask so many questions? I'm just trying to understand so I can do my job better. And then while I'm doing the task, my brain is constantly going, oh, so it's always been done this way, but no one's ever bothered to change it. But based on what I'm doing, it seems like it would be more efficient. It would save a lot of time. It would save a lot of effort, money, if we did it this way. And then I go, hey, I know we've been doing it this way for this reason. I've been thinking about it, and I think this this option could be a lot more effective, and there are a lot of benefits to doing that. And then sometimes you get pushback. Well, we've always done it that way. That's just how we do things. Why are you trying to change tradition at this company or at this position? Mm. Why can't you just do it that way? So then you're like, oh, what's what's the point of me even being here if you don't value what I kind of bring to this position or this company. Am I just supposed to be like a little worker bee and just do, yeah. <laughs> do it however you want me to do it when there are better options to do it? I, I hate that we jump back and forth, but it, this, is, this is a critical piece of information for me when mm -hmm. I think about, okay, how I can take this knowledge to my classroom mm -hmm. because there, I had this understanding that I just need to add more instruction to a homework or ma a more in-detailed information about how the steps need to go through. Or, for example, for a homework assignment, like break it down to multiple steps rather than like find a solution for this or the mm -hmm. size of that. It's like find this number first. But not every structure works. But I, I want to jump to the current time and see how how that is causing issues or anxiety in in your PhD experience. So is, is there anything that you can relate to that tendency? So there have been some hiccups where like you go through training to do assessments or therapy or whatever else that you're learning in grad school 
And there is almost this thing of like, we have the traditional way that we do things. This is how we do training for this particular thing. That's how he's always done it. That's like the norm, but that norm doesn't work for me or other people who might have ADHD and their memory isn't yes. that great. Like you just like vomit all of these words at me at the same, at, at the same time. And you just make me sit there for an hour and a half and I'm not doing anything hands-on. It's all abstract. It's just going to go one ear out the other. And sometimes there is a little bit of pushback where we go, hey, it would be really nice if you could write it down. I know you've always done it this way. And a bunch of people have done really well with you just saying all this information in a short amount of time and just expecting them to, to know it later. But that doesn't really work for me. I want to do the best that I can and get the most out of my training. Can you please just write it down or do, do it this other way? And sometimes they go, why would you even need and may not take you seriously unless you did disclose, oh, I'm autistic or, oh, I have ADHD and my memory like really sucks. You kind of have to disclose that information for people to take you seriously. Yeah. It's like just going, oh, you're too lazy to like listen yeah. or what's wrong with you. So it puts you in like a weird position to disclose. information. This, this was enlightening for me, honestly. I came to this meeting conversation with the assumption that maybe I don't have many shared experiences. But mm -hmm. now that you're talking about this, from a different, maybe with a different motivation, because I, again, like I have this, someone with ADHD have this tendency to challenge a system, mm -hmm. take risk. I mean, like see how far I can push that, mm -hmm. you know? And that's where I can see how structure or for example, something that doesn't make sense to me. I think there are more efficient ways of doing things that really bothers me. I mean, mm -hmm. like, so it's just like, why don't we simply do this? I yes. mean, why are we doing all of these kind of like mm -hmm. uh, extra things yeah. to achieve the same objective? Same, it's the same objective. So I can relate to that. Let's now go back. And so your middle school and high school, you were in the same school, right? Yes. And it was relatively fun. Okay, let's get to your undergraduate graduate years. <laughs> so undergrad, it was kind of like whiplash because I went to middle school and high school in a place I was pretty accepting, bunch of weirdos. We all embraced a lot of things. And then I went to undergrad and then I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to do because I don't know most of these people. It's a bunch of new people in a new environment and I don't really know how I'm supposed to act because this is where the structure comes in play. There isn't as much structure in undergrad. You make your own schedule. You choose what classes you want to take. You choose what clubs you want to go to if you want to have any. And so it was kind of isolating for me because I didn't really ha like I had like a few people I knew from high school. But when you're in college, you like branch out and you try to make new friends. And I was just isolated for a long period of time because when you're autistic, sometimes it's like you see all these people having fun, you see them having conversations mm. you want to join but you're not exactly sure if they want you to join, how you should join, would that be welcome? And so it feels like there's this glass wall between you and like everyone else around you. And so I spent a lot of time by myself in undergrad, just like trying to figure out how to branch out and like make new friends in such an unstructured environment. And then eventually I did have some roommates that I became friends with. And I did join like a couple of clubs, but it wasn't like I had close friendships because I primarily make friendships out of proximity. Like I spend a lot, like in high school, you spend a lot of time with the same people. You have classes all the time. There is that structure in place. But if you don't have a set time where you like see someone all the time, that's kind of hard to maintain friendships because in my mind, when I'm away from a person, it's not that I don't care about them, but they may not come to my mind. I may not think, oh, I should text them about this thing. So it's harder to maintain a friendship if you're not seeing each other on a regular basis. Hmm. Like, I love my parents and I talk to my parents a lot. But when I moved up here and I wasn't as close to them, I literally had to schedule in my calendar, call mom and dad and have a phone call with them just because... I would forget, like, I would think, oh, it's only been like a week and it was a month. And I go, oh, like, I love them, obviously, but it just didn't occur to me. Is it yeah. only friendship or, for example, if you ha you're supposed to do homework, but you're not in that environment that you typically do your homework? For example, you're like on a vacation and you still, mm -hmm. how changing the environment that is not maybe known to with that task, for example, again, like being on vacation and like doing something serious about work, how do you receive? Um, I want to see like being in that environment, being the proximity that you mentioned, mm -hmm. 
if that may translate into other things. The, the concept so like being of able to complete work and things like that? When, when environment changes or like... I don't think that that really impacts what I'm doing. I think it also shifted during the pandemic because everything was at yeah. home. And so there were blurred lines. And so now I've had to like place boundaries again because yeah. the lines got blurred during that time. But I don't think that it significantly impacts my mindset or ability to do certain aspects of work at home mm -hmm. or certain like chores if I need to yeah. run them in another environment. If I did get distracted, I mostly just like put on headphones and I will listen to house music mm -hmm. and I will like turn it up very loud to get, I have to be like very stimulated with music. That's like one of my stims that I use to like regulate. And once I have that music, then my, everything else in my mind just shuts off and I can do the task that I need to do. And I can do it for hours, as long as I have like that music and it's not just silence. Cause if I didn't have that, then I would get distracted by everything in my environment because of like my sensory sensitivities. Cause I can hear everything. And so by flooding like that, that. Yes, by flooding. I can overcome all of like the distractibility of like, oh, the lights or the way that the chair feels on my legs, or I can hear the electricity and there's like a humming that's driving me nuts. If I just flood my senses, at least my hearing, then I can go ahead and focus on the task so for a long interesting. time. Do you, do you do that? I, in a different way, if it, there is pure silence, mm -hmm. then my mind starts wandering. I mean, there is no way to control it. I need some background noise, undetectable, untraceable. Like a lot of times when I have to do something that requires focus is not my preferred task, like writing, for example. I go to Starbucks and that background noise, it kind of masks things that I can particularly atten pay attention to. And then again, silence, there have never been able to focus in silence. I mean, like, if I go to my office, I mean, like, everything is quiet, it's like working right, or library. I was never able to study efficiently in library. It was mm -hmm. too quiet for me. Yeah. So in a different way, it, I need some background noise. Mm -hmm. It's like a white noise that cancels yeah. out, like, the other things. And But this concept of flooding is very interesting because... Um, Again, like as an educator, I always thought that any type of stimulation leads to overflooding or, for example, feeling overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. But now you're telling me, no, if it is selected, if it is like, if you know how to use that efficiently, that mm -hmm. it's, it's, and you know, there's another interesting point here is the the negative role that stereotype is playing. For example, like in the context of ADHD, I've talk to many parents and they say like, no, my kid is lazy because he can play six hours of video game. If someone has that, the atten that attention span to play six hours of video game, mm -hmm. there is no way that person has attention issues. But it's different because you're getting dopamine. Dopamine out of it. So yeah. that hyper-focus and yeah. that those ideas that oh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, so attention should be a problem across the board. For that reason, and th what you're telling me, if, like someone, if I didn't know a lot of things that I know about you, someone tells me, oh, you know, I can calm myself down with loud music. I was like, okay, so it's not autism because mm -hmm. that is supposed to... You're supposed to not like loud noises and yeah, but I get to choose that noise. If it's like a like in a in a city like New York City and there is an ambulance that just randomly turns on its horn, then I might get like shocked and go, oh my God. And that'd be overwhelming, but I get to choose the music I'm listening to. Mm. And that choice is, is nice. So it's the second time progress and choices <laughs> yes. coming up. And... and a lot of autistic people actually like going to concerts because that's something that they are choosing to go to. They know what to expect. They like the band that they're going to. They know the, the songs and they really enjoy it. It it makes them feel really happy. And they're they're going to an environment knowing what exactly what to expect. And so that choice and that knowledge makes it feel good. Yeah. Yeah. I remember we, we were working in my structural engineering research with a student with autism and told us kindly that if there's something we can do to make sure there's no, no, no loud sudden noise, that dropping a yeah. tool or something like that. He said, I mean, it's, it's very painful. Mm -hmm. And we were mindful of that. And that was very nice of him to communicate that with us. Your college years. And do you think 
if isolation that isolation has to do with the stigma and your avoidance of communicating this openly transparently with friends i mean do you think that had a role i think on one hand sometimes i didn't want to say or like i didn't know what to say to like have someone believe me and like care enough to invest in like a relationship or a friendship with me in other cases like i did know what to say and i did know how to communicate my needs and they go that's weird why do you need that and so i don't know in in some in some areas it was like maybe i didn't say enough and in other areas it was like i knew exactly what to say and people weren't meeting me where i needed to be met like I would do for someone else. If if you go back and you want to give a piece of advice to 19-20 year old Asia <laughs> in terms of self-advocacy, I and mean, what would that be? I would say to not isolate and just like give up as quickly. Like I tried, but I would say don't give up as quickly and go out to different clubs because I think there was maybe a neurodivergent club at yeah. the time. I think I would have gone to like seek that out and and go to the the areas that were more welcoming than maybe some of the areas that were closer to me and more available to ju- just take the extra step to look into Explore more more before you give up. Yeah. There's cuz I'm sure there were tons of people who were willing to be my friend and I just didn't find them. The last question about the the grad the undergrad experience was there any particular lecture type modality that was more difficult than other ones for you to perform well perform as good as you think you're you can do i mean what it can be like online lectures or for example lab based ones or for example when when you didn't connect with the instructor so some some situations that stood in the way of your success in that class i think the classes that required a lot of participation were difficult. I have always been a person where if I have something to say, I will say it, but if I'm forced to say something, it's like my mind goes empty and I don't know what to say and then I'm in my head going, "Oh, they probably think I'm stupid. I know that I know this information, but like you've put me on the spot and I don't process things in that way." And they would go, oh, well, clearly you didn't read. And I'm like, no, I read. I just didn't have anything to say about this particular. Mm. And so then I could see like disappointment on people's faces that I wasn't able to like immediately come up with an answer on the spot, standing in front of like 30 people I don't know very well. That was difficult. That and just being isolated in like 300 people classes where if you're taking physics and it's really difficult and you don't have a lab or people to connect with, it would be on me to go and like walk up to other people in my class and go, hi, you don't know me. Would you like to study with me? Because I don't, I don't know anyone here. And I also, I'm not very good at physics. So like not having a built-in study group would be difficult. Because like whenever I was teaching, I made like a message board and tried to get them to have study groups. So I I could facilitate that for them instead of them having to take it on themselves and Mm -hmm. maybe get left behind or Mm -hmm. not make friends in the class and be alone. Again, like it points out, we knew that based on the research we were doing, like neurodiverse learners, they don't like large. For ADHD, it makes sense. I mean, uh, again, I could relate because it's very difficult to sustain your attention. I mean, like there's no one-to-one like interaction between the teachers. So you're essentially is a death valley for attention, a large class. And they don't know your name. They don't know to follow up with you. Even if you miss a lot of classes, how do they know? Yeah. So, but that's nice to hear how it is detrimental to learning of a neurodiverse, uh, an autistic individual formation. Did you have any issues with isolation in undergrad or other areas of school? Not amongst undergraduate, other undergraduate students. We tend to take the risk easily, like start a conversation. And like mm-hmm. sometimes I mean, that, because for example, like my, it's less on the social mm-hmm. interactions, more on task delivery. For example, being a dyslexic, mm-hmm. those tough moments that I didn't know how to approach it or how to communicate were related to, for example, me making a mistake, spelling mistake on a technical 
report mm -hmm. that I delivered. So yeah. it was just like that moment of embarrassment. No, the, believe me, I mean, like th that doesn't say anything about my understanding of the topic. It's mm -hmm. just because they, they think it's just lousy work, right? Yeah. When you see spelling error mm -hmm. on that. So it was more related to that and my interactions with educators or TAs rather than other students. No, I didn't feel isolated, but at many points I felt that I don't belong. If I'm so stupid that I cannot spell right, I have spelling, I mean, second grade level spelling issues mm -hmm. uh, in my college level report. So probably this is not where I belong to. So it was a lot of that subconscious idea formation about like, okay, like my, what is my relationship with this environment? Is it transactional? Is it just like I'm going through something, you know, or, or this is where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. This is where I'm supposed to be was always a big question. I thought I have to just survive it. Mm -hmm. That was how I interpreted education internally. It's just like something that I just need to go through. Yeah. So. And you don't have to. It could be better. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I hope with more awareness, there is a time in near future that like we really don't. I mean, there is no reason for a conversation of this nature. So transitioning to your graduate school experience. So let's let's talk about the unique strengths that you're bringing to your PhD program or PhD education. Let's, mm -hmm. let's start with that. I mean, like, um, how do you think being an autistic is making you a unique PhD student? Mm -hmm. So, so for a lot of autistic people, there is a strong sense of justice. And there's like this idea that autistic people are like fully innocent and naive. But like we do get a lot of things. It's just that we don't necessarily want to play into lies, even if they are white lies, because we don't necessarily see the purpose of them. Like we practice a lot of honesty with people. And with that strong sense of justice, I'm always on the lookout for ways that I can better my community, ways that I can help other people, ways that I can strengthen the program, the way that we do therapy. So we're not harming people, either in the program as students, because being in grad school can be a harmful environment because kind of like put your head down, just do what yes. we tell you until you can get your degree and then you have power. But I think I just bring a, why don't we just do it now attitude? Because I can't, I can't just let it go. I am fixated on it because I see the issue and now I need to do something about it. Even if it's something small, I have to do, I have to put some form of energy into it. So I can't necessarily turn my, turn my back on that. Also, again, I, I think very creatively, like I see a lot of issues and I go, why don't we try this? And they go, oh, it's too much work. And I'm like, I'll do it with you. You have one person who has signed up to do the thing. Let's just go ahead and do it. Let's brainstorm together. Let's think of strategies. Let's get other people in. Let's delegate tasks. So like I'm very organized, efficient, I think creatively, and I'm very passionate about something that I have my, my interest in. And I will not let go. I'm like a dog with a bone until, yeah. <laughs> until just kind of tussling with it. So that's, that's very good. That's very important. I think we need that in our graduate education. We need to have people that they question status quo. That's yeah. just the nature of graduate, that yeah. everything is subjected to doubt and question. I mean, yeah. like, that's how we can succeed. If, if we do everything the same way that things were done in the past prior research projects, there is no new information mm -hmm. that can come up. I mean, like, we have to, at points, deviate from things. I mean, think about other ways of doing things. And that, that, I think that's very, very important for graduate education. I want to actually talk about another stigma here because you're talking about your tendency to question norms, try to optimize it, make it better, more just. But at the same time, again, we have read that students with autism, they tend to favor repetitive tasks and mm -hmm. doing things the same way. So can you resolve that con conflict for me also? I love repetitive tasks. I actually used to work in health insurance where I had to do repetitive tasks. I like both. So if I'm very overwhelmed, maybe I'm approaching burnout, it's nice to just be able to turn my brain off and maybe listen to a podcast, an audiobook, music, nothing, 
and just do something that I, I know why I'm doing it and I know how to do it. I don't really have to think too much about it. That's just like a way that I can self-soothe and kind of reduce any anxiety that I might have. So I like those tasks when maybe I'm, I'm really tired, maybe I'm having anxiety, things like that. But I'm feeling great. Yeah. Then I can put that energy into the other things that maybe I don't have all the answers to. Maybe I'm just brainstorming. But I have the energy to put it into that kind of task that needs a little bit more work and isn't mm -hmm. repetitive. So I work on the things that I need to brainstorm. And then I'm like, oh, I'm tired. And I go back to the repetitive tasks to soothe. And then I will go back to the thing when I have more energy to do it. For ADHD, I think it is just flipped. Oh. <laughs> because when we are tired, frustrated, we tend to start breaking boundaries and like mm -hmm. trying to experience like any creative outlet. Mm -hmm. That's where we find calm. In those moments, I mean, it's detrimental to us if we want, want to keep working on something mm -hmm. repetitive. Yeah. So it's very interesting that it yeah. is kind of like the opposite, that when you have energy, you want to do something that is more creative, and then you find calm and soothing in doing repetitive tasks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... In terms of your interactions, I mean, in graduate school, your relationship with your advisor mm -hmm. or program director, I don't know, like in your program, how much role they have. For us, in traditional engineering, it's, the advisor has, has a lot of power. Mm -hmm. How do you think that might become a pain point, a pain point in, for someone with autism, what kind of like dynamic is not necessarily productive? I can give you one example. For example, when with ADHD, staying on schedule mm -hmm. can really take things to the south. And it's mm -hmm. just like, oh, you're not staying on top of it. You're dropping balls and like all of those things that can really kind of like change the dynamic. Mm -hmm. uh, so what is what, what do you think about that interaction? And for me and for a lot of autistic people, it's not necessarily like deadlines or things like that. I think it's more of being able to fully understand each other and fully relate to each other just because like autistic brains are just different. Like it, it grows differently than allistic or non-autistic people. And so there are some things that like I will say and maybe he doesn't understand what I'm trying to get across and I have to like try to translate exactly what I'm trying to say for an allistic person. And then sometimes he'll say something and I may not get it. It's like there has to be some type of translator aspect in the middle and it may not always get across exactly how we mean it. So sometimes there might be points in the conversation where we just go, okay, I don't necessarily see what you're saying, but like I trust your judgment and like we, we can just move past that thing. So it's just like not feeling fully connected to someone because they, they can be understanding, but they can't fully understand what your brain is like. And like how you're processing things like that. And it, people who are not necessarily as understanding go, why do you do that? Or why are you like this? Why can't you just be normal? Mm -hmm. I was hoping I would get a normal grad student and you're not living up to my, my expectations. What do you think could be a solution to that? Uh, like inviting advisors to be more understanding and patient or, or having some communication about... That, that there is some preparedness mm -hmm. going through this, like that, okay, you may not immediately notice what my point is, but mm -hmm. if you ask me, I can like reiterate, I can try a different way of explaining mm -hmm. something or can, so do you think that communication could be helpful and also talk about the I, I think the communication can be helpful, but that also requires some level of self-awareness. Yes. So one, you have to know that you're neurodivergent, exactly how you're neurodivergent and what your needs are so that you can advocate for them and get them accommodated and communicate that effectively to someone. Whether or not that is received well and warmly by the other person is kind of on them. I think that if you are an advisor, you should do your own research into being a teacher of a neurodiverse student, but also just how to be a good person to people who have different brains and be willing to receive that information. So if I came in and I say, hey, you know, the office space has really bright light. I would like to bring in lamps or other lights. Do you mind? I know it is your lab space. I know I'm your graduate student, but do you mind if I kind of change things around in there? As an advisor, it would be really nice to go, oh, you know, I really didn't think about that, but I really appreciate you bringing it up to me. You can absolutely do that. Actually, I will 
I have funds to like decorate the office. I'll go ahead and purchase a light. What would you like? What would be most acceptable for you? Or I really like to have agendas when I go to meetings. And if I have an advisor who's kind of more like loosey goosey and doesn't stick to that agenda, that can kind of not be annoying, but like it's overwhelming because I'm like, I had a plan. <laughs> I was going to get to and I had all these points but I think having that conversation can be really useful and at least making an effort to go oh I'm so sorry I know we got off task you had other agenda items let's make sure that we address those before the end of the meeting there's just like some mutual understanding and some self-awareness for both people to try and understand each other and respect each other as best as they can yeah I'm, I'm thinking like how useful it would be for advisors to listen to this conversation. I mm -hmm. mean, like when we started, the audience that I had in mind was mainly graduate students mm -hmm. who are experiencing some challenges. If you can relate to some of those, if you can suggest something or just like for them to know that it's not them, is there is no fundamental problem. It's just the system, the way things are, these experiences are shared to a good level, you know, so that isolation and that internalization of all of those challenges we can, but now I'm thinking that advisors or even teachers can really benefit from this kind of honest conversation. Because again, I can imagine while you're describing these different scenarios, I'm thinking like, oh yeah, I can imagine like a request like this is stonewalled by saying, no, no. I mean, like there are concerns in the lab, this, 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 orientation, this organization is very important. I'm like mm -hmm. completely immediately dismissing that idea that maybe it's not coming from, oh, I want to change things just, just to change things. I want my taste to be there. It's, yeah. I want to decorate. There might be some deeper reasons for a request like this. By the way, what's your relationship with Flores and Leist? <laughs> They're my arch nemesis. <laughs> I call them the bad lights. They, there's just like a particular sound that they make and just like the brightness and the coolness of the color is just very irritating for my eyes, for my head. Yeah, I, I think I'm on the spectrum then. <laughs> for lights? Yeah. Do you have any other sensory sensitivities? Some, like if it is like a cold touch or mm -hmm. yeah, some like metal cold touch. So let's talk about fluorescent lights. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I have always had an issue with fluorescent lights. Before I came here, I had a job and they had light dimmers on the switches. And so I would dim them as dark as possible, but still have some light. And I had twinkle lights on the wall and I shared an office and thankfully the other person hated fluorescent lighting as well. And so we were just able to sit in an environment that wasn't overwhelming and I was able to focus on my task. And sometimes people go, oh, she's not in there. So they wouldn't bother me. So that was also nice because the lights yeah. were dimmed down, but... It made a world of difference to not have to have the overhead light because I would just sit like this and try to look at my screen all the time. And that's not good for your posture. Or your yeah. Back, so that was much better. So simple things as easy to fix as this one mm -hmm. can be used, helpful to, to make the environment more conducive. Mm -hmm. And let me ask another question in terms of like sensory overload. Does it accumulate, for example, if you have, feel overwhelmed with just like lighting, the sounds, and then the, the next thing that comes up are, is your kind of threshold level lower already or? Yes, it's like all the things add up together and then I go over the edge and then sometimes people might shut down. So I, if I'm at a party or something and I've reached critical mass, then I will go maybe to the bathroom or like to another quiet area and just sit in the dark for maybe five or 10 minutes and just be by myself in a quiet area. So my stress level and my overload level can come down to a reasonable point and then I can rejoin. Or on the other hand, I might reach critical mass and then I am just agitated and I'm going to be agitated for a while. I might be snippy. I might be kind of mean to someone. I don't necessarily want to be. I'm just so overloaded that I need you to leave me alone. And if you keep talking to me, I'm going to yell at you just because I can't deal with anything else mm. at the time. So if... Again, some of those sensory stimulants are out of control, like mm -hmm. sudden noise or something, like something mm -hmm. drops on the ground floor. But if there is something we can do with like the background thing and the, not assume that it is given, for mm -hmm. example, like some fluorescent lights, I mean, mm -hmm. that can reduce that background, like slowly accumulating mm -hmm. overload. 
and leave more bandwidth for things that we don't control over. Yeah. We don't have any control over, yeah, right? Yeah, we're dealing with background noise. It could be as simple as putting like things on the walls so the walls aren't echoing because sometimes that can like reverberate back into your ears and that's painful to hear that. It could be as simple as just going, here's your own set of headphones that I got for you. Or if you have like a particular type of glove, but like the texture or the way that it feels, is, it makes you want to like claw your skin off Then looking into different types of gloves or different types of clothes. Like even small things like that can mean the world of difference. In terms of your interactions with other students, do you prefer to have a private office or you want to be in a bigger office that we have? Like we have two types of offices, even in engineering that it's just like a, particularly those that they do computer-based things, simulation, they, they're like shared office spaces and rarely we get to like more individual lab type environment that students get to have their own corner. Uh, which one is preferred for? Hmm. I think it depends on what I'm looking for. Because usually if I'm working on something, I like to be in my own space by myself because then I can kind of modulate or make something different in my environment and not necessarily have to worry about the other person if I'm bothering them. Because sometimes other people really do like to have bright lights and that keeps them awake and it fo and helps them focus, but I can't be in there. And I don't want to like mess up the environment for someone else if that is also an accommodation that they need for themselves. So I think it depends. In some certain circumstances, I like having a lab space with my other lab mates and we can kind of be in there, we can chat. If we're doing things that don't take a lot of attention, I love being in there with them. But there are other things that take a lot more focus. And I would just prefer to be kind of on my own in this space. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all of this insight of yours. It's very helpful. I want to also ask you to share some suggestions, advices with educators mm -hmm. and also parents. Mm -hmm. What can they do to really make it a more welcoming environment for the wide range of neurodiverse learners? I would say the biggest thing is to not make assumptions. So I have seen and heard a lot of assumptions where people assume the worst intentions from someone. Usually they assume bad intentions. They don't necessarily assume, oh, maybe they have like sensory sensitivities. It's just like, oh, they're just being difficult and disruptive and there's something wrong with them. So I'd say the first thing is don't make assumptions. If you notice something and you don't understand it, you can just ask the person hey, I noticed that you're doing this thing. I hope you don't mind that I've mentioned it, but I want to make sure that you're okay. Is there anything that I can do? Is there something that you need that I can provide for you to make it a better space? Just asking, like, that makes it feel validating. Oh, someone cared about me. They noticed and they didn't assume the worst in me. They really want to help. And then you allow them to, to have the space, a safe space to let their voice be heard. Because a lot of times people have been told in the past even if you speak up, no one cares. So just kind of keep it in. There have been times where I'm like, oh, I could meet, I could kind of share my own needs verbally, but I've been told long enough that no one cares, even if I do mention it to them. So providing a space where you're not putting it on them to communicate it with you is really helpful. Because mm. then they go, oh, this person has actually taken the time to, to learn about things and they care. They at least have an open mind even if they don't know everything. And parents? And parents also don't make assumptions. There are a lot of parents who make assumptions about their kids. I would say if you know that your kid is neurodivergent and you know like what flavor of neurodivergent they are, what they struggle with, what their strengths are, try to use their strengths and have a strengths-based approach and use that to, Beautiful. I don't know, empower them, make them feel great about themselves, comfort them. If they can use their strengths to maybe modulate some of their weaknesses or some yes. of their struggles, that's great to just focus on the weaknesses and go, oh, here are all the ways that you're lacking. That's not very motivating at all. And it's hard to hear your parents just pick at all the, the bad things that they think are wrong with you instead of going, oh my God, you're phenomenal at this and this and this and so many other things. I love that you're bringing that up. Um, we did, haven't had any chance to communicate this, but like what we are doing here not to do necessarily this project but other projects mm -hmm. from day one my philosophy was strength-based mm -hmm. because i realized that like okay if if that deficit perspective pathologizing this these kind of like neurological differences the medical model if it was supposed to be working we should have seen like already like significant impact mm -hmm the amount of money that's going to special ed, like those special programs. I mean, that should 
solve the problem if the, the approach was, because we were putting a lot of resources behind that. Mm -hmm. So I started with this fundamental belief that we are missing the point here. Our approach doesn't matter how much resources you put into a system, if the purpose is to prove and go, it, if, if it is based on this underlying assumption that you're broken and this resource needs to be used to fix you, mm -hmm. or to just like, yeah, there are these major shortcomings and they are gonna use some resources to balance that out or something like that, 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 that's not going to work because you're stigmatizing the person. Mm -hmm. You're killing their self-image or destroying their self-image. And you're just reinforcing the idea that you indeed do not belong here. And I need to use these extra resources and mechanisms to just like fix the lack of belonging as, a, as a, like a converter that mm -hmm. you are a square peg and we have this kind of hole and let's see how we can make you fit in there. I mean, like, it's mm -hmm. just like that idea that, that it doesn't matter how much we work on that because it's fundamentally deficit-based. Mm -hmm. And it's we're all not whole people. Help. There's nothing missing. We're, we're just all our own individual paintings. We've been painted differently and we all have beauty. We're just built differently. That's that's very true. And the education system is assuming that there is one true standard ideal model of student out there. Mm -hmm. And the more students they can push toward that, so there's like less distance between that image and the, the, the student, what students can become or should become, then the more successful education system has. I mean, like it's not about nurturing diversity. It's like, okay, what do you have to offer Asia? I mean, like we say, okay, you're good at like art, you're good at music. I mean, so don't worry about them. How's your math? How's your spelling? Rather than say, okay, if your math is so good, why don't we spend more of our time mm -hmm. on your math skill? Mm -hmm. Or why don't we use, I don't know, like if someone, it, someone is very good at creative writing, why don't we use like that outlet? Mm -hmm. Why don't you submit your homework by writing about some like thing, you know, like, why don't we use that as a way of assessing your learning of the topic mm -hmm. rather than say, oh, okay. So that is what you're working on. What's, that's what you're good at, supposedly. So, but the, I identified deficiencies in this area. So we are going to allocate more resources and time to the, what's that? It's not a good way to measure people's knowledge. People know so many things, but they just force you to like memorize something. And if you have a bad memory and you can't recall it at a certain day and time when you're sitting down in maybe an environment you don't like, then automatically they're like, oh, well, you don't know the material and you get a C and you can't ever change that grade. What if it wasn't my day? Yeah. I mean, like I come from Iran and we have a nationwide university entrance exam it mm. happens in one morning and that mm. defines your life rest of your life mm -hmm. if you're sleepy that day if you feel nauseous if you if there's a problem if, if that is not your morning that's not your day that's a lot of stress and it's just pressure. unbelievable that everything is determined by that mm -hmm. for performance in four hours and as you, you absolutely i mean like final exams i mean like who said that that is the day that i can present my best performance <laughs> and in <laughs> and their format that. like yeah yeah so there's so many of struct and when we talked about the structural problems these are structural like assumption that yeah final exam of course it works i mean like student that cannot perform well in the final exam probably is not a good student probably is not going to make it clinician, engineer, scientist. So those assumptions, as you said, I mean, like not only about behavior that we see that doesn't fit the mold mm -hmm. in that moment, but assumption that like a, a good engineer is supposed to be able to perform under pressure. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a nice thing to say mm -hmm. or expect, but like, aren't we humans? <laughs> mm -hmm. Don't we have our own vulnerabilities, moments that we just don't want to engage in certain activities. It's mm -hmm. not the time that I want to have this presentation in front of a class of like 120. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, this is not my time. This is not my day. There's a time and day I'm cheerful. I want to do that. What if it, you, you schedule it for that 
time, yeah. you know. So, mm -hmm. so it, it, these are very important, and I, I really hope um, more people start talking about that conversation of this sort. So I'm trying to be very mindful of your time. So one last question that I have is, we talked about you going back to your, giving an advice to 19, 20 year old mm -hmm. uh, self. Let's go further back. Someone who is in middle school, high school, mm -hmm. that's a critical age that they form ideas about what they are good at or not. What do you think you can tell a girl or a boy that is really forming serious doubts about their capabilities if they if education if if pursuing higher education is their thing or not i would say to look into various options and blaze your own path don't just follow something don't just follow a path that people say that you should do and don't necessarily believe someone when they say oh you can't do that and just like toss that option off the table Think about all of your abilities. Think about all the things that you're good at. Think about all the things that you're interested in. And then just try them out. It's okay if maybe you stumble a little bit, but that's kind of part of the process of understanding yourself and what you might want to do. Maybe you don't necessarily want to have like a nine to five career and you want to do something a little bit more flexible. That's also totally fine. You could do vocational schools, things like that. Just try multiple options and understand that there's not one right, one right path and that you don't have to live what other people think that you should or that you are capable of living. And they, if they have already formed ideas about their capabilities, is, mm -hmm. that, is, is there a secret code that you can use that? Think, think about that, <laughs> that like, think about how you perform in that situation. Just, mm -hmm. just remind them, like, give them like an instantaneous glimpse of, of their true self rather than that suppressed, I mean, like, like they, they, they suck life out of students, I mean, mm -hmm. gradually. So, I mean, like, can you just inject some soul yeah. in there? <laughs> I would say for a middle schooler who's kind of struggling, I would want them to remember that they are still growing. They are still like a preteen or a teenager. Their brain is still developing. They're still growing. Just because it's difficult now does not mean no, it's going to be difficult forever. Just because there are people in your life currently who maybe don't believe in you or they're saying you can't do something, that doesn't mean that there are not a ton of people that you will meet later down the line who will support you and who will believe in you. And there is a version of you in the future who will believe in yourself and is trying to like send love to you from the future and who's inside of you waiting, waiting to get out and kind of flourish in life. So just this. hold your inner child and <laughs> treat your inner child with love and care and try to do that by them that's powerful that's powerful i think this is a perfect time for us to wrap this up is there anything you want to add um i was kind of curious to know about worst pieces of advice or best pieces of advice that you've gotten about neurodivergence and how to navigate adhd and neurodivergence i was diagnosed as an adult so during my K-12 education, even college years, I didn't have much interaction with like special education or you know, nurses or you know, other people that may give advices on that. It's mainly telling this idea that if you work harder, you're going to be able to fix the issue. Yeah. Is the lack of understanding that, like, that this is neurological. It's not the matter of lack of practice when I have spelling error. I, it's a hundred percent random choice of this spelling versus that. I mean, like it's double L or double M or it's like single. So it's not something that can be addressed by just working harder <laughs> or paying more attention. So some of them are way more, it's the same way that like, I, that, that example is a little extreme, but it doesn't matter how much I tell you, you have to really work hard. You can fly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, like, some of us are not designed to fly. I mean, mm -hmm. like, so, or in sports, I mean, like, in other things. I mean, this idea that that issue is lack of hard work has always bothered me. Because at that moment, it's like, do you know I've already worked three times harder, yet I have, I have these problems? So how about we talk about acknowledging that hard work rather than you tell me that that is not yet enough. Mm -hmm. 
go work harder because it is physically impossible. Mm -hmm. It is, doesn't matter how many times you tell me you can fly, I will fly. I mean, like, no, it is physically impossible. So that is the worst type of, you know, interactions I've had. The best ones were those that I got to know the teacher, instructor as a person. Some sort of like they noticed, for example, like some uniqueness in the, the work that I submitted or the extra where I'm mean, like, we had a follow-up conversation on that. So I was able to relationship with them. It built a lot of context around the material that I was learning, you know? So that was very important for me. I would mm -hmm. say like those teachers that I was, they paid attention to the difference of the work. I mean, like somehow they acknowledged it or appreciated that, encouraged that. So those were the most encouraging environments for me when I look back. And luckily I had many of those exams. That's why I'm here. I mean, like, so luckily it was a net positive experience. It was difficult. Challenges were, were significant, but it was net positive. And um, so that, that I hope answers their question. It does. Thank you. Thank sure. you very much. And I thank you again for the time you took and agreeing. I know, again, like I've been doing this work for a while. I'm totally open talking about my experiences. Mm -hmm. I've never had an awkward reaction by like others. I mean, when they, so, or I didn't pay attention to it if there was something, but it is too much to ask others to join and make themselves vulnerable, talk about their experience and, or just identify themselves. I mean, like to the world, I mean, like, and be, this is sacrifice. I mean, you're taking all the risks associated with, with this because you know that if your voice is heard, it can help someone out there. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much for doing that. I really appreciate that. Thank you Thank for you. caring enough to do this. Thank you. I, I really hope we can have a follow-up conversation. I see like that there is more ground to cover, but for today, I think we can end it here. Mm -hmm. And thank you very much. I will be talking to more brilliant graduate students like Asia in the future episodes. And I hope we can build a community, as Asia said, and spread the word and help those that they feel helpless at this point. And please also subscribe so you get notified when we release a new podcast, new episode. And at the end, I want to also thank the National Science Foundation for supporting this research and making the production of this podcast possible. Thank you. Bye.